politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles, broadcasting to all of Southern California and live streaming at kpfk.org for the world. Thanks for being with us today. Good show. Got a a guest, a friend of mine who uh, last joined us a little over a year ago. Dennis Merritt Jones, and we're going to talk about everything from positive thinking to manifestation, and not only how it works and how to do it and when to use it, but when it's misapplied. After all, the law of attraction is a spiritual law. Is this something that we should be using for material goods? And if so, when is enough enough? What is the role? of material stuff in the life of a spiritually oriented person. There's a Sufi phrase about learning to live in the world, but not of it, that I think bears on this. And we'll talk more about it when we introduce Dennis in a few minutes. But I have to open today's program with a commentary about war in Europe. And before I do that, I need to remind you that we're in our fund drive, the first KPFK fund drive of the new year, 2022. And so I'm going to be brief in my appeal today. I just want to remind you how important it is for you to become a member of the KPFK family, of this community, of this effort to remain commercial-free and free of the influence of big corporations, allowing us to do programs like this and more than a 100 others every week. Support us at kpfk.org slash donate. You know, with Sustainer Circle, you can contribute just $10, $15, $20 a month. $40, 50 $60 a month would be great. And yeah, you could dig deep once a year and come up with 150 or 250 or maybe $500, but I think it's so painless just to contribute 15 or $20 every month. You won't even notice it, right? How could you possibly even be? <laughs> You'll only be aware of it when you go to reconcile your bank statement, if you even do that anymore. It'll be a line item on your uh, online account, or if you get a paper statement, it'll be there every month, your 15 or $20. If you go now, right now, to kpfk.org slash donate and make your pledge. If you'd rather call us, pick up the phone and dial right now, 818-985-5735. That's 985-KPFK in the 818 area code, and uh, make a pledge or whip out your bank card, your ATM, your credit card, debit card, 
and make a donation right on the spot. But uh, Sustainer's Circle, I think, is a smart way to go. Point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. Look for Sustainer's Circle, set it, and forget it. Now let's spend a couple of minutes talking about war in Europe. This has been breathtaking for me in a way that has surprised me and caught me off guard. The depth of feeling that I have watching the invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces. We've seen this before in Crimea, in Georgia, but we've also seen it in Iraq, where uh, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld used the phony excuse of weapons of mass destruction. We all knew it was nonsense, said so on this radio station many times. And yet uh, a lot of Americans bought into it, just as they did the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which never happened. It was a lie to involve America in another foreign war, Vietnam. Since World War II, which arguably is the last justifiable war that involved the United States and its allies, there are countless examples of illegal, immoral, and unjust wars. You could argue that all war is immoral unless it's clearly about defending the homeland, But less than 15% of America's war budget, so-called defense budget, actually goes to defending the continent. 85% goes to project our power in foreign places. And so since World War II, we've squandered lives and treasure in Korea, to no avail, in Vietnam, in Kuwait, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Not to mention El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Grenada, my God, and countless other incidents, police actions, conflicts that were covert. Currently, we have troops, combat troops, in 150 nations. Hell, there's barely 200 nations in the world. Virtually everywhere you go, there's an American military base. That's not about defending America. And so as Americans, we're no strangers to war. And yet, as progressive and, and, and liberal and anti-racist as I think of myself as being, and I'm sure you do too, I must say, seeing war in Europe uh, took my breath away really surprised me, caught me off guard. And uh, to say it's wrong and that Russia is the evil empire and fall into the good guy, bad guy, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We must be the good guys because we're not them and we know they're the bad guys. All of that simple-minded either-or stuff, save it for the football game. Save it for the hockey rink. Basketball, even baseball, team sports, a winner, a loser. Life doesn't work that way. We can't just bifurcate the world and think in binary ways, either or, right or wrong, good or bad, all or nothing. If you're going to oppose this war, 
you're going to have to consider that it's time to oppose all war, to abolish war from the face of the planet. And how do we do that? Do we do it by petitioning our government and demanding that our Congress people and senators come to their senses and stop funding this war machine? Well, a significant amount of their campaign money comes from these so-called defense contractors, these purveyors of war, these merchants of death. Again, I have no problem with having a standing army to truly defend the country, but that's not what we're doing, and that's not what we've done. You say, well, NATO has to stand up to the Russians. NATO is a an alliance of democracies. No, it's not. How do you account for Hungary being an autocratic country and a member of NATO? How about Turkey, a despotic regime and a member of NATO? NATO is not about democracy. It's a military and, to some extent, economic alliance. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization came out of World War II. Mostly good guys, yeah. <laughs> you know, mostly democracies. And that's what autocrats like the ruling governments of Russia under Putin and China and North Korea and a handful of others. It's freedom, it's democracy that they fear. But we have people right here in this country that are working to undermine democracy. Look at January 6th, a year ago. That was clearly an attack on democracy. All of this nonsense from the right about a fake election when anybody who's being honest knows it was a fair and proper election. Votes tabulated by counties, hundreds and hundreds of counties. Not a federal vote, not a bunch of states, but individual counties. That's where the election takes place. How would you rig something like that? So there are military attempts to undermine democracy and non-military attempts to undermine democracy by many of our fellow citizens who claim to be patriots. Remember, the 140 law enforcement officers who were injured were beaten with American flags and, uh, in a couple of cases, Blue Lives Matter flags and flagpoles. There's something very strange about right-wing claims of freedom and liberty. Truckers in Ottawa, for example, and their copycat friends in America that block traffic, that impede commerce while shouting freedom, taking freedom away from others in the name of freedom. It's crazy. And most crazy of all is war. Shooting strangers dropping bombs, firing missiles, and shooting hot lead at people you've never met. And for what reason? For medieval reasons, for money and power and territory resources, for nationalism, for racism. And I bring racism into the discussion of war because, again, Speaking for myself, and hopefully you've identified this in you as well, a war in Europe feels different. It shouldn't, but it does, than war in Iraq. How different was it when Rumsfeld went in, Bush and Cheney, with their shock and awe campaign, 
were not children running in terror, were not their parents horrified, and how different could it have been for the people of Iraq? But they were not Europeans, so it concerned you intellectually, but it didn't hit you, I'm, I'm thinking, quite like war in Europe would. And so too in Afghanistan or Korea or, or Vietnam, these are brown people. United States could have nuked Germany in World War II, but it didn't because it was full of white people. They had no problem nuking Japan twice, putting Americans of Japanese descent in concentration camps. Americans of German and Italian descent were not putting any camps. Racism always plays a role in war, and so that we're shocked even as good progressives who like to think of ourselves as anti-racists find themselves stunned by war in Europe. It's all war we should oppose, not simply Russia's invasion because it's inappropriate. All war is madness. It's an abomination. So what do we do if we can't count on politicians to stop war? Our government will not stop war. It's an integral part of the war machine. You can be the peace that you wish for the world. You can be the kind of person that you wish other people to be. Whether you call it tipping point, critical mass, the domino effect, the hundredth monkey, the butterfly effect, there's many examples of the impact just a small group of people can have on the world. There's a great quote by Margaret Mead, never doubt the impact, I can only paraphrase, but it's something like, never doubt the impact of a small group of dedicated people. It's the only thing that ever has changed the world. And there are many examples of that. Gandhi, Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Tutu, Christ, Buddha, Christ, Buddha, Mohammed, Moses, Hermes, <laughs> how far back do you want to go? Individuals who changed the world, and countless women whose names we don't know. Happy Women's Day, by the way. And so be the peace. Be kind, be gentle. Learn to manage your anger. Learn to stop before you act in a harsh way. Breathe deeply, relax. Understand your anger is hurt. Learn to dissemble it, take it apart, own it, fix it. Refuse to react to it. A simple kindness to another person influences them to be kind. And it ripples out. It makes a difference. Meditate. Imagine stormy waters becoming calm. You may say, this is really hippy-dippy, Michael. This is really airy-fairy stuff. As if that's going to matter. Yeah, it will matter. Be the kind of person you would like others to be. And you will have a greater influence in the world than you may imagine. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Wage peace, not war. Abolish war, all war forevermore. We'll be back with my guest right after this. You're listening to KPFK.
My guest today has been with us before a number of times in studio in the pre-pandemic days. And uh, more recently, I guess about a year ago, Dennis was on this program and we talked about one of his uh, one of his books, a more recent book about abundance. Today, I'd like to talk about positive thinking and goal orientation, uh, especially the metaphysical aspect of that, sometimes called the secret. And what's that really all about? And, and what's spiritual about wanting more money and more stuff? That always seems challenging to me. And so I thought I'd take it up with my guest today, the author of a number of books, and we'll talk about those and let Dennis be a resource for you. I'm happy to call this gentleman a friend of mine, and uh, it's a pleasure to bring him on KPFK again. Dennis Merritt-Jones calling us today from beautiful Florida, FLA. Hello, Dennis, and Welcome to KPFK. Thank you, Brother Michael. It's good to talk to you again. There's no alligators around you. Now, are Not, I'm 15 stories in the in the sky, so I'm in a high rise, so there's no, no, no alligators here. <laughs> That's the first thing I think of when I think of Florida, and I know I shouldn't, but uh, alligators scare the bejesus out of me. They're just so primitive. and uh, No more than some people we know, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true enough. Hey, thanks for being with us today. I want to talk with you about a thread, a common thread, or maybe better said, a golden thread that runs through a lot of metaphysics and what we used to call new age. I think that term new age is pretty much uh, dried up and blown away, uh, which I'm fine with because most of these principles are older than time itself. These are ancient, I like to say ageless. And uh, this is the whole idea of reaping what you sow, which requires that we know what we want. I think a lot of people don't have what they want because they don't know what they want. There's an idea that if I just move toward a vague, hazy outcome, then I'll figure it out as I get closer. But if we don't know what we want, we're never going to really get closer, are we? Yeah, the, the, I think that the challenge is we have to be sure that we don't get caught up in the snare of our wants. You know, like Maslow gave us the you know, hierarchy of needs. There's a difference between our needs and our wants. And when we are able to discern that our needs are few and our wants are many, we need to begin to narrow down our wants to wants that serve the higher purpose for our being on the planet. Our needs are few, our wants are many. I guess it's just human nature to want stuff, right? Yeah, sure it is. Who doesn't want stuff? Who doesn't want stuff? You know, I guess the the key is to make sure the stuff that you want doesn't doesn't have on you. Yeah, but aren't we somewhat tormented by that? I mean, where does contentment come from? When is enough enough? It's never enough. You know, that seems like a trap. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a trap. When is enough enough? I think that we have to arrive at a point of, uh, and this it sounds so airy-fairy, but it's true. We have to arrive at a point, a conclusion that we already are enough. That sounds so new agey and, you know, you're enough, I'm enough. But that's, that's the bottom line. We come fully equipped. You know, we come with all the gifts we need. We just have to un- drill down and un- unveil them. 
Well, since we're uh, using trite phrases, let's talk about uh, it's the journey, not the destination. Right. It seems to me a lot of our desire is to be on a journey, you know, road trip. And um, I remember Oprah and Gail uh, on the Oprah Winfrey show years ago did a couple of weeks of just being on the road and where they were going didn't matter. And I thought, what a great allegory for all manner of fable and tale and and adventure. And so it is with acquiring stuff, even as a, a little kid looking forward to Christmas. It was so exciting to see those packages under the tree and rip them open and pile up my booty. But, you know, within a week, all that stuff was on the shelf or in the closet. And my desire nature had me looking through catalogs for more new stuff. That's known as the, the hedonic treadmill. I get hedonism. Explain that. Well, the hedonic treadmill is always pursuing that next best thing. And once we get it, it's not enough. So we continue on the treadmill for the next best thing. And as we achieve each best thing, it gets used a little while and gets set aside. And then we get back on the treadmill for the next best thing. And that's, that's you know, endemic, I think, in, in our the collective consciousness of, of certainly Americans, maybe more so than other nationalities. Well, but it goes beyond stuff. I mean, we see that in relationships as young people anyway. We have to have this relationship with this really attractive, intelligent, fun, funny person. And then familiarity breeds contempt, you know, (laughs) 60, 90 days into it, you're looking at somebody else. That's true. That's absolutely true. Unless you drill down deeper and find character in in the person that you're you're talking about that gives you cause and pause to be there for more than just surface oriented things. But that takes work. Oh yeah, you bet. That's what relationships. That's why some relationships fail because individuals are not really willing to put the work into it to get past all that stuff. Maybe a bit of a sidetrack here, but uh, one of the things that. I've noticed over and over again and find really intriguing about my relationship with my wife now 30 years or so is the way the quality of love changes. And it is work. Uh, I don't want to overstate that. You know, my wife would say, what do you mean work? (laughs) But I mean, there's lots of pleasure and, as much as it's gratifying about having a lifelong partner, uh, somebody who stands beside you, somebody who cares about how your day went. Somebody who has your back, you know. Yeah, yeah, well said. Well, you know, Michael, my parents lived until they, they, they were married, celebrated 75 years of marriage before they passed on. Wow. 75 years, can you imagine how many... <laughs> That's a long time to be looking at the same face. So they had to they had to drill down and really through the layers of, of who they were and who they thought their partner was to continue to rediscover things that kept them engaged. Well, that's what I mean by the quality of love changing. Uh, I think it gets, um, gosh, words fail me here. It goes from um, romance to uh, feeling like this person is literally part of you i mean in the in the way your arms are part of your body or your legs are part of your body it's just 
the thought of separation to me is inconceivable at this point. And I think there's a spiritual overtone to that. I think that's the whole idea of marriage is a union that parallels our deep desire to go home again. Yeah, yeah. Connect with our spiritual source. Well, we all need a compass in, in relationships. My wife and I, you know, every year we sit down, as we recently did, and we define our lives by our core values, and and we put together a new mission statement and a, a vision statement for our relationship. Every you know, and and that relate that, that vision statement becomes the compass by means of which we we navigate through life's challenges and we sit in the morning meditate together and each day we review our vision statement and, and our mission statement and focus on one or aspect or another that we want to really talk about that day to enhance the awareness of the idea that we created this vision statement for ourselves with purpose and meaning to guide us to a, a deeper place uh, and get us through the, the challenges that I think a lot of couples uh, end up going their separate ways. See, now, this is right on the money. This is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. This is a whole uh, quantum leap beyond what people normally think of when they think of a book like The Secret or the movie that that uh, followed up or treasure mapping or goals lists uh, you know, the idea that you can use spiritual laws to attract usually material things. This, this, this is the pitch. And you're saying, wait a minute, instead of putting on your list uh, a new car, a bigger house, uh, a raise at work, that boss ought to appreciate what I'm doing and we need more money and all these material things seems you're setting goals when you talk about a mission statement with your wife. That's pretty lofty. Can, can you tell, tell us more about that? It, it's what keeps us. It's what keeps us uh, in the, uh, the the flow with each other. The, the The mission statement is help it helps. It describes our what we what we're doing to achieve our vision together. You know, I mean, I could read you the the mission statement if you wanted to hear of it. It's it's just it describes what all the things we do in our daily lives together as individuals and as partners to achieve the vision for our lives. Well, I was a little hesitant to get too personal with you about this, but <laughs> if you're willing to, yeah, if you're willing to share it, I'd love to to hear it. Hold on, I gotta I gotta grab it real quick. All right, pausing while Dennis goes to get his. Marital mission statement. I li- literally have it here. You can see it. Wow. It's it's on a chart. A diagrams. It's a diagrams, yeah. And we pull it out and look at a different aspect of the diagram each time we're, we're uh, sitting and talking in the morning. So our vision statement is evolving together, mindfully letting love point the way in all we say, think, and do. Mindfully letting love point the way in all we say, think, and do. Now, if you drill down on that, that's pretty profound. That you you would mindfully allow love to to be the guide for every action you take, everything you do as an individual or as partners in that relationship. Wait a minute, this is profound. This you're getting the pony in front of the cart here. Instead of pursuing love, you're allowing love to guide the pursuit. Yeah. 
That's a good way to put it. Well, then, how do we do that? That does not sound logical. That sounds like it's more emotional or intuitive. Well, for, for us, what the common ground is, our, our spiritual connection, that we, we realize we came from the same place and, and we connected with each other for a purpose or we're sharing that purpose together as we unfold our lives. I mean, I could read you the mission statement that describes how we achieve this vision if you'd like me to read it to you. Yeah, sure. Okay. Our mission. And we read this every every morning when we stand to meditate. We read this mission statement in, in completion to, so we can really be focused on what we're trying to achieve. As a spiritually grounded relationship, we're committed to mindfully practicing reverence through the awareness of God's presence at the center and circumference of our lives. We accomplish this by daily checking in with one another and making conscious choices guided by love and spiritual integrity. We're committed to deepening our relationship, evolving together by supporting one another in our individual pursuits and personal growth. We take time daily, intentional time daily, to breathe, play, and have fun together. That was a real important core value for us, having fun. Okay. Uh, we invoke the spirit of generosity, compassion, and loving kindness, beginning with ourselves and extending these acts to our world. We're committed to openly and honestly communicating with one another and those around us with respect. We give one another permission to gently hold the other accountable for the faithful fulfillment of this mission by mindfully letting love point the way. That's it. Holding each other accountable. So... Lovingly. Lovingly. Gently. So it's a non-critical tap on the shoulder. Hey, I've been... Yep, exactly. How, how would you, how would you do that without sounding critical? Well, we we we're conscious enough with each other that if we know that what we want to bring up is something that's of a sensitive nature that could sting, we say something like, "Can we talk?" Or, uh, "I want you to," which is notice that that means that the next thing that's coming out of my mouth is very important. You hear it all, but not in a defensive way. Okay, or I have a request. There's another way to say it. I have a request, which means the next thing that I say, I'm going to ask you to please consider deeply without being defensive about it. Defensiveness is a funny thing. Um, I found myself feeling, well, at first frustrated, maybe even a little angry in a situation uh, not long ago and recognized my frustration and that edge of anger as being a defense mechanism. It was sort of profound for me, at least at the time, to realize that anger is often a defense mechanism. It's designed to scare away the enemy, right? Yeah, it's driven by fear. Anger is fear and is one of its most convincing disguises. Right. But what came up for me was, hey, Michael, who are you defending exactly? And why do you believe it needs defending. And then it all fell away. Because who I aspire to be, who I think I truly am and aspire to be, needs no defense. Because it's not it, it's not of the ego. Exactly right. Yep. One of my old friends, Terry Cole Whitaker, wrote a book uh, years ago. You may remember it. What you think of me is none of my business. <laughs> I do remember that book. Yeah. 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 
Terry did some great work. Was she, uh, did she come out of religious science in the Dr. Holmes? Yes. Yes, she did. New thought. Yep. She's still around. I don't know where she is. I saw her a few years back. She seemed like she's doing well. Oh, good. That's great to know. I used to watch her TV show and, uh, God, it must have been the late 70s or early 80s. She was on television in Los Angeles. Yeah. That's how I met her. I sang at one of her uh, programs. <laughs> I was invited to sing <laughs> back in the 70s. Oh, man. Talking about another day in time. Yeah. For our listeners, we should repeat the name. Terry Cole Whitaker. She's uh, wrote a number of books and very eloquent. Dennis, let's... Uh, Let's talk more about this idea of goal setting and um, reaping what you sow and treating others as you wish to be treated and uh, karma and uh, the law of attraction. My goodness, it comes with many names and, and touches so many aspects of our lives. But one of the primary reasons I wanted to talk to you about it is I think it's often misused and, and misunderstood. At what point does this truly spiritual principle, let's call it the law of attraction, uh, at what point does it is it misused? When when does it become black magic? When it becomes obsessively self serving, you know. And you've heard me say it before. There's only one of us here, and and moving into that awareness of our oneness and our, our unity with the all and every human being on the planet. When we can live from that place, our actions don't always are, are not always motivated by serving ourself first. It's by serving the other first. That's a high, lofty ideal, but man, that's that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to knowing that you're living a life of purpose and meaning. This is great. Let's talk about this because uh, we see self concern all across the political spectrum. Oh, I think, yeah. but. And, and I want to avoid the politics of it, so I'm, I'm going to carefully tread through this. You go where you want with it. But <laughs> self-centeredness, self-concern, I mean, selfish. Nobody wants to be selfish or admit to being self-centered. And yet so much of what being an American is about and what we call freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness really is self-centered. Yeah, and, and yet, and yet, if we capitalize the S in self, it becomes sacred or spiritually oriented, where self-centered means I'm thinking of the presence of infinite intelligence within me, saying these words, taking these actions, doing whatever it is I'm being motivated to do. And it changes the, the arc of what I do and the intention behind it. So this brings up, for me, the phrase higher self. Yeah, right. So there is the regular self, the, <laughs> the, the persona, the personality, the ego. Yeah. But then yeah. what is this higher self? Is it a self that is not a selfish self? If not, what would it be? Well, that's, that's a fair question. The, the lower self, small s, looks in the mirror and sees and judges what it sees. Fat, tall, short, old, young, skinny, hairy, bald, you know, all the, <laughs> all the, it sees with the critical eye. Whereas the self, capital S, sees nothing but unconditional love. 
and does that non-judgmentally. Yes. How else can it be unconditional unless it's non-judgmental? Well, <laughs> I think, again, speaking for myself, looking at my maturing over the years, the idea of looking at something without judging it seemed very strange at first and took me a long time to, uh, how, how do I live without judgment? Uh, isn't that? I'll tell you. I'll tell you how. It's, 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 it's easy, but it's also the most challenging thing we'll ever do. There's a difference between judgment and discernment. Okay. Being discerning is to observe something without an opinion about it, just to say, ah, I see. No, no, don't reach a conclusion or an opinion about it, whereas judgment always has emotions and feelings attached to it that lead to a, a, a opinions. Could we add to that that judgment tends to be rather binary and either or, right or wrong? Sure, or bad? of course. That's where it's, it comes from duality. How else could it be? Yeah. Well, I guess that's why there's a third light in the traffic light. I often say judgment is for traffic lights. Right? <laughs> Every time I see an orange, I have to decide, do I, do I slam on the brakes or do I, That's true. Do I roll through? Yeah, it depends on how fast you're going, right? Yeah, it depends on a lot of things. How many tickets I've had recently. So much judgment is about other people. I, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt that said, uh, great minds consider ideas. Uh, moderately intelligent minds talk about events. It's the small-minded people who talk about each other. And so much judgment is gossiping about Joe and Sally, and did you hear about this and hear about that? You ever reflect on what we find so fascinating about that? Yeah, it's juicy. I mean, uh, gossip is all about, I have a secret, I'm going to tell you, and it's about power. It's about power. I have, I have knowledge you don't have, and I'm going to share it with you right now. You know, the thing about gossip is we have to remember that the person that, that we're gossiping with will also gossip about us with, with other people. <laughs> I'm afraid that's true. <laughs> it is true. Let's follow this a little bit more, not just gossip, but this whole idea of how to use your mind. What's the alternative to judgment? What does it mean to be non-judgmental? Is it the destination or is it the journey? Do you know what you want and why do you want the things that you want? More with my guests right after this. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 KPFK. We're in Los Angeles. We serve all of Southern California from Santa Barbara to San Diego. And of course, we stream for the world at kpfk.org. Appreciate you tuning in. Dennis Merritt Jones is my guest today. Dennis was with us about one year ago. We talked about his book on abundance and prosperity at that time. Mm -hmm. Today we're talking about a similar principle, but sort of uh, opening the focus to everything that is positive. We're looking at the common link, or maybe better said, the golden thread that runs through Proverbs or parables like reaping what you sow, which is so profound in its implications, or 
If your traditions are oriented toward the East, you may just think of this as karma. Uh, I've seen in all religions, in fact, I wrote down at one point 13 different versions of the golden rule, which is, again, the same thing, treating other people the way you wish to be treated, because there is this give and take. We tend to go where we look and get what we expect. and. When that's applied to specifically knowing what you want and the setting goals, it becomes an art form, but it's not purely about material stuff. It gets misused and commercialized. And even the uh, most conservative uh, fundamentalist Christians have picked up on this. I find it quite curious and even distressing that Christianity would be about money and <laughs> televangelists driving Maseratis and living in multi-million dollar mansions and, and that uh, I don't know about this God guy but he sure seems to want a lot of money and money all of a sudden is why Christ was crucified? I mean, I think the message is <laughs> a little become confused here. So, well, the prosperity I, gospel has definitely uh, taken over a lot of uh, ministers' uh, pathways. Their higher consciousness got waylaid. I think you know, but that's, I do too. I do too. I would love to hear more conservative Christians asking themselves, and, and all Christians, and all people in general, saying, when is enough enough? Yeah. And how can we be proud of the fact that we have inordinate prosperity? I'm not talking about somebody being wealthy. I'm fine with people being wealthy and living well. Uh, and I think everybody should have a roof that doesn't leak and a car that starts. Um, some decent clothes to wear, but you know, hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars. Well, one in five American children are food insecure. We 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 think of African children as being hungry, or Asian children starving. One in five American kids is food insecure and i'm not saying that elon musk and warren buffett and bill gates should be buying their lunch but something's very wrong in a society that uh is so rich and so prosperous where we can spend 750 billion dollars a year on war but our schools are falling apart so Say what you want about the laws of prosperity. Something's very wrong here. Dennis, help me out. Well, again, it goes back to intention. You know, why do you want to manifest more stuff? You know, if it's to serve yourself and to expand your own empire, that's one thing. If it's to, if it's to serve a larger good, which if you realize that you're one with the all, how can you not be drawn to want to serve beyond your own domain to give beyond your own domain it's your belief system that creates your reality reminds me of the uh one of my favorite axioms or proverbs from the east 
uh, I've seen it attributed to several different gurus, uh, something like uh, to avoid injuring your feet, you could cover the world with leather. It's just easier to wear sandals. And uh, uh, another allegory might be uh, if you didn't like the movie, you wouldn't rush toward the movie screen to try and manipulate the images. You know it's projected from the booth behind you. So we need to take responsibility for the way we think and the way we feel and stop being a victim of our own consciousness, do you think? Which, which requires us to hold a, a real honest-to-God mirror up in front of ourselves and discern and take a look, an honest, unjudge, non-judgmental look at what we see. You know, I mean, like you said, you know, holding a mirror, you know, when, you're, when you hold a mirror in front of your face and your hair is messed up, you don't comb the, the mirror. Right. <laughs> you comb your own hair, right? And 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 so that's stop looking out in the world thinking you're going to change anything because you won't. The only change real happens authentically is when we hold ourselves accountable for what we think and believe and feel, and which all work together, and then uh, challenge what we think and feel and believe to a higher standard. Well, what's occurring to me now are two questions. Michael, what do you care about? I'm asking myself, what do I care about and why do I care? Well, you're asking me that question? Yeah, well, I'm... What do, I, what do I care about? Well, for me, because I, I, I really try to the best of my ability to live from a, st- a state of consciousness of oneness with the, the world, other people, why I care is because... Um, I see myself in them. Yeah. And And that's the ultimate in reflection is even the reflection is an illusion to see yourself and others or uh, what's that roomy line? I searched for God and found myself. I searched for myself and found God, something like that. Mm. But to see divinity in all things is to see that as you were talking about in your marriage, but this is true for every human being and every animal and every insect. And I would go to the rocks and the flowers and minerals, the rivers and the sky. We're all uh, emanations of, of one thing. And that's not for the logical mind only to discern. I think there's something deep inside that says, Yes, that's so true. That's why we want to hug trees and walk in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. I think we have an intrinsic calling to beauty, but not. No, I'm not talking just about physical beauty, but beauty as as what the eye reports is something that moves you emotionally. A sunset, a baby, a puppy. You know. <laughs> so. If you were a high school guidance counselor, Dennis, and you work daily with teenagers, <laughs> boys well, and girls. If, that's, that's an if that'll never come to pass. <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell them about making these all important decisions about which college to attend, whether to go to college or trade school? What are you going to do with your life? How would you counsel them to come in touch with not their gross desires, but their true aspirations? I would counsel them to 
to be willing to take a look at the things we were talking about, consciousness, that their beliefs stacked up one on top of each other have created their, their, the reality of their life. That's a, a pretty lofty conversation to have with teenagers. And yet, I had, when my daughter was born, she was born the, the year I started my church in 1985. And so she was born being marinated in the awareness of what we're talking about. And I look at her life today, and, and, and she, she picked it up by osmosis. And she's an outstanding, amazing young woman, 37 years old today. She's a doctor, has a wonderful life, a wonderful family, and she's, she's contributing something to, to life. She's not just taking. She's a medical doctor? She, she's a doc, her doctor's in integrative medicine. She was an acupuncturist, uh, uh, a um, certified nutritionist. She works in women's reproductive health. Oh. So I think that's great advice to make your life be not only about yourself, right. but about being the best self that you can be in service to other people. Can yeah. we say it that way? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in order to do that, we have to get out of ourselves. We have to, you know, we have to, we have to even reach beyond our own pain, emotional or physical pain, to do that. There's nothing, we're never so full of ourselves when we're in pain, whether it's physical or emotional. So we have to learn how to transcend the pain, especially the emotional pain, in order to make ourselves available to... Uh, be there for other people. And I think a lot of personal pain comes from just a misguided belief that my job in life is to make myself happy, mm -hmm. to live for me. And again, as I said in the first part of our show, a misunderstanding even of American values you know, liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. But that's not me instead of you. It's not right. a you or me world. It should be a you and me world. But I'm never happier than when I'm able to offer something to somebody else to help yeah. them feel less afraid. Or and yeah. it doesn't have to be a big thing. It could just be a simple kindness, even just listening to people. I think some people are surprised that they don't have to give advice. Uh, if somebody comes to you with a problem, uh, they're not necessarily looking for an answer. If you just listened and said, well, you know, what, Michael, you know what they're looking for? Excuse me for interrupting you. They're looking for compassion, empathy, and sympathy. That's what they're looking for. You know, compassion, yeah. empathy, and sympathy. Again, I think that's understanding, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, at different levels. Yeah. I think even when people argue, there's a presumption that the argument continues because each side wants to be right. And I don't think that's true. I think what we want is to be understood. At the deeper level, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's correct. So so that if we could say to our partner or to somebody at work or the guy down the street or whatever, you know, buddy, I, I still don't agree with you. I see it a little differently, but I can understand how you'd feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think probably most of us, some of us, <laughs> maybe two of us have friends and associates who have a different philosophy of life than us, you know. 
of family members. You know, I have family members who are on the total opposite side of the fence with me politically and from a spiritual perspective. And yet we, when we're together, we're able to put that aside and just be with each other and share love for each other. Yeah, you have to do that. My brother and I have been at odds politically all our lives. And funny thing was, the day he retired, he <laughs> he changed like that. As soon as he was out of corporate, he became uh, uh, a nicer person. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, he would probably disagree with that, but that's uh, funny. It uh, it certainly improved our relationship. I've always loved my brother, of course, but. Um, I don't know, maybe it was sibling rivalry that took the guise of politics, but uh, a lot of that's been resolved. Yeah, you do have to sidestep politics, and it's becoming increasingly difficult. Religion, too, they say, never argue politics or religion. I, nope. I suspect the reason for that is that these are both complex areas that are not well understood. I think if we yeah. if we understood politics and religion as a reflection of who we are rather than something that existed out there and was happening to us in in, in charge of fixing the problems in our lives I'm guilty of that thinking well why doesn't the government do something about this why don't they pass a law to fix this and it's like well wait a minute how about if i begin with what can i do to make a contribution small though it may be you know it adds up that's moving from the me to we belief system what's in it for me to the WIFM w-i-i-f-m principle what's in it for me until you ascend to a place of consciousness where you realize there's only one of us here and then it's what's in it from me What do I bring bring to the table? That's nice. That's nice. So if someone's thinking about setting some goals and finding real purpose and meaning in their lives, and they stumble across one of these positive thinking books, and it tells them to make a list of what they want or create a collage or a montage, a a map of their goals and their dreams Mm -hmm. or to affirm it with chanting or whatever, what, what tips would you have for those people in setting those well, goals? You know that I, I, I do mentoring with people uh, all over the world. And, and one of the things I work on with most of my mentoring clients is goal setting to identify where it is you want to be. Because if you don't know where it is you want to go, you'll end up nowhere. You know, and to have measurable goals, that's that's really a key element is to have measurable goals, something you can hold up to, to a litmus test and see that you're going in the right direction. Now, let's face it, when you get in your car, you don't just start driving without some, having some place in mind where you're going, whether it's a grocery store or across the country. Right. You have it, something in mind before you head out. And that's that's really what goal setting is. You have something in mind before you start moving out into your life what do you what do you want to accomplish you know and and set measurable goals being meaning that you have check-in points where you can see if you're on point or not with those achieving those goals i think it's the cheshire cat in uh, uh alice's adventures in wonderland who says if you yeah. don't know where you're going then any road will take yeah. you there right right 
Dennis, how can people find out more about you and your books and your online presence? Well, thanks for asking, Michael. You simply go to my website, DennisMerrittJones.com. That's D-E-N-N-I-S-M-E-R-R-I-T-T-J-O-N-E-S.com. On my website, you can find all the information about what's going on with my books. Uh, I've written six or seven books. I've got, uh, you can go to my, my press uh, page on my website and download all kinds of free ebooks and articles and workbooks and things like that. All of my books have workbooks, uh, study guides that you can download free, as a matter of fact. And uh, you're still writing for Science of Mind magazine, too, right? Right, right. I write Good. four times a year, yeah. Yeah, I like uh, I like your articles there. And uh, we had uh, another fellow who's contributed to that magazine, a young man on our show recently, and I asked him if he knew of you, and he, he does. His name is Jeffon uh, Seeley. Jeffon, a very unusual name. He said he's the only, he said, Google me. He's, I'm the only Jeffon in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but he's in his 20s and he's yeah. off and running he wants to do what you've done and, and there's there's a proof in the pudding that anybody can achieve you know i mean i'm 72 years old and I've, I've achieved a fair amount but somebody at his age who is clear on where he wants to go and then you begin to lay a plan out to get there and he's doing it. And that's proof that, that if you have the consciousness to, to arrive at a certain point, you will. Yeah. And I think you'll be supported by the universe in doing that. Yeah. Well, when you find what is yours to do, the universe finds really crazy ways to support you. Yeah. yeah well said. Dennis, it's always a, a pleasure, a real joy, a true joy to speak with you. Thank you, and, um, and I look forward to having you on again. Thanks a lot. Got Thanks so much for having me, Michael. It's good to talk to you. Merritt has two R's and two T's. That's right. how I remember Dennis Merritt Jones. And uh, again, Google him. He's got a lot of great material. And in closing, let me remind you to support KPFK with your pledge, donation, contribution at kpfk.org slash donate. Or... Pick up the phone right now and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Make your pledge $100, or Sustainer's Circle, $15, $20, a month. It comes right out of your bank account. Easy peasy. Thanks for listening. You'll find us at theagelesswisdom.com more about me at michaelbenner.com. We also podcast and post to YouTube. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK. KPFK.